Welcome back to Return to Odyssey. I'm Josh. I'm Rachel. And we're here to once again look at an episode of one of our favorite children's radio shows, Through Adult Eyes. Thank you for joining us. Today we are going to be reviewing The Day Independence Came. Yes. Which is one that has lived in our memory many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're excited to get into it. But before we do, we want to mention our sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible.com, which is a great source for downloading things like audiobooks, audio dramas, podcasts, things of that nature. You can sign up right now for a free trial via our link that we have in the show notes. Or go to audibletrial.com slash return to odyssey. You can get a free 30-day trial, which will give you two free audiobook downloads. And as we like to do, we will give you one book recommendation that's linked somehow to the subject matter of the Odyssey episode we're going to review. And this time we would like to recommend the book Johnny Tremaine. This is a classic children's story set in the American Revolution piece of historical fiction. You may have had to read it for school when you were a kid, but if you didn't, you should check it out because it's worth your time. So go download it. Johnny Tremaine by Esther Hoskins. Okay, so we have some caveats before we jump into this episode. Yes, we do. First off, I'd like to mention, for all of our international listeners, thank you so much for joining us, but this episode is a specifically American episode. You are more than welcome to stay. We are going to be talking about American history, as I'm sure the title of the episode already indicated to you. We're also going to be talking about Americans' views on American history, how American historians do American history. And about what American Christians are to do with all of this. This is going to deal with some complex stuff, as is our want, which should be a fun ride. Just know if that's not your wheelhouse, if that's not your set of interests. Maybe this is a skippable one, or maybe you'll learn something. Who knows? But thank you for sticking with us. All that said, let's jump right into American opinions on American history because we have opinions and we are Americans. Well, in order to do that, I think we need to talk about bias in general. So there's always this idea presented that the best way to go about research or reporting on anything is to set any bias aside, to give no bias at all. This is a carryover from history being treated as a science. The problem with this is that it's really not possible. Every single person has a bias. We come to our podcast on Adventures in Odyssey with a set of biases that I hope we're fairly clear about as we go about our discussion. We try to remain objective, but also we we are individuals with opinions and everyone has opinions. Mm -hmm. So anyone who is presenting history is going to present it with a bias. They are going to tell the story of days past, people past, whomever, with a specific opinion about that story and about those facts that will color the way they present them. Now, this does not mean that various historians or whatever are liars or that they are telling untruths. Bias does not mean I'm making junk up, but it might shape which details I tend to focus on in a narrative. You'll have very different pictures of American history from very different perspectives. Someone who loves America will probably give you a very different version of events of American history than someone who hates America. 
and anyone in between may give you different shades of different stuff. So when we give you information about history, this is stuff that we have researched and we know that the things that we research, the people reporting on them, have their own biases. Adventures in Odyssey certainly has a bias, for better and worse. Yes. So let's lay our cards on the table at least somewhat. We are going to try to be as apolitical as possible. Unfortunately, because of the nature of talking about the Founding Fathers and about the American Revolution, these are colored oftentimes in our discussion of them by politics. Focus on the Family, which produces Adventures in Odyssey, comes from a clear right-wing bias in most issues. Because of that, we try to enter, in our attempts to be as objective as possible, into a little bit of... Devil's Advocate territory? Maybe. That might be a good way to say it. There are episodes, particularly when it comes to American history and Bible stories, that we remembered coming into this whole podcast project as being very biased a particular direction in ways that we did not appreciate. And if you've listened to our show at all, you'll know that we don't really pull punches on our criticism. No. But we also want to be able to give credit where credit is due. And recognize our own biases in this process and set them aside to give that credit. Never yeah. Mind. Our goal in this podcast is as much as possible to set personal biases aside and present things as objectively as possible. That said, we are human beings. We have opinions. Yes. So with that hopefully out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the story itself. And maybe some of this will become more clear as we discuss the story and the elements going on. This episode begins like a classic first season Odyssey episode. Chris introduces a one-off character named Erwin Springer, and I don't think we ever meet Erwin Springer. Either. I don't know. I didn't have any memory of him at all, although weirdly, I had lots of memory of him as he appears in this episode. Yes. So she introduces him, saying he's playing historical trivia with Wit and Tom, and she has this statement, you never know what's going to happen at Wit's end. He's playing historical trivia with Wit and Tom, but in a few minutes, who knows where he'll be? Which is kind of a setup for the direction the Odyssey episode is going. That's true, yeah. So, Wit and Tom are asking him all of these questions about the Revolutionary War, and he's able to answer them all, one after another, right off the bat. And they're, they're impressed easy. with his knowledge and wisdom So I have on a such question. Matters. How did they get on trivia? Because she says historical trivia. Are they playing Revolutionary War Trivial Pursuit? I don't think so. It sounds like they're just coming up with questions off the top of their head. Well, then Tom asks, how do you know all this stuff? So obviously Tom can't come up with these questions off the top of his head. Wit is. Well, and how does Wit know everything? Because Wit is Wit. He ran an encyclopedia company, you know? That's he's true. uh He's got just... knowledge skills. <laughs> And I, don't, I don't even know what to, I don't know what to say. Drawing skills. So Erwin explains that he's a big history buff, and the Revolutionary War is his favorite period in history because there's so many heroes like George Washington and John Adams and Nathan Hale. And it's clear that is this kid's geekdom. Yeah, he is obsessed with heroes of the Revolutionary War. Which is very cool. And then we had a bit of a writing fail because Wit says, oh, and speaking of Franklin, 
I got you a book on him. Yeah, and Benjamin Franklin had never been mentioned beforehand. No, no. So Wit says, I meant to get you that book. I found it on a sale downtown, and it's in the Bible room. And when he said this, this is where my defensive hackles start coming up to say that a book on American history is in the Bible room makes me uneasy because this is, again, the bias that I'm afraid the writers of Odyssey have. And it is a bias that a subset of Christians do have. This idea that America is God's chosen people, almost that America has replaced Israel and that all of the promises that God made to Israel are now manifest upon the United States. That's a very extreme version. There are spectrums. Yeah, but there is no biblical evidence for this. It's a bad misuse of scripture. Along with that idea is this belief that all the founding fathers were Christians. We've heard the statement frequently in our growing up. America America was founded on Christian principles. And America America is is a Christian nation. nation We have moved away from the Christian principles of our nation. Which is and is not true. Yeah, it's not entirely false, but it's also not entirely true. America has a spotty, weird, mixed past where you have great Christian leaders, but you also have things like colonialism and all of the garbage that we did to the Native Americans and slavery. And we have a checkered history at best. Well, it's evidence that people are people are people. Part of what gets my hackles up with this kind of language is that as soon as we start having any specific religion and politics conflating together, we start getting dangerous soup. Corruption. Corruption in the church. You start getting less freedoms in a way. America from the is not a theocracy. No. And never it is has not. been. And And anyone who kind of presents it as such just doesn't know their history. No. The only theocracy that has ever really worked was Israel. And it only worked some of the time time. because the people disobeyed God all the time. Right. But when people were following God, then yes, things went swimmingly for them. When they were not. Things went south very quickly. But we can talk about that. Maybe we're getting a little bit off topic All that to say, this is part of our fears as we were entering in this episode. And when Wit said, oh, the book on American heroes is in the Bible room. We were I was like, here we go. And starting to get scared for what would come next. But let's get to what comes next. So he runs off to get it. We have a scene cut, and we really like the music, actually. The music in this episode is really fun. Yeah, I think I mentioned last episode that the music was fun, because there was, like, this good little country-western bit. This one, the music is an absolute blast, and it's, like, this little fife and drum kind of riff. And it, it changes style throughout, depending on what's going on in the scenes. It's great. It is super duper fun. So he comes running into the Bible room, and he's like, great, there's nobody here. I can read it right now, which made me wonder, what, are you going to read it out loud to yourself? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like, why could he not read That's... with other people present? I don't know. Maybe the other kids would be too noisy for him to read. Or they're like... Getting rowdy in the Bible room. Well, it's also, maybe they want to engage him in conversation. And this is something that, you know, anybody who's gone to a frequented coffee shop where you know lots of people is going to run into this. I just want to read my book or do my homework. I don't want to have a conversation. It also makes me question what the Bible room is in Wit's End. That's true. Because I've always pictured it more like a hall of exhibits, kind of like you would see in a children's museum, interactive 
of exhibit type things. Yeah, a big room. But like this sounds more like a library. It's got these bookshelves and stuff well, and, and comfy is, chairs to plunk down in. This and... aired, I think, before the Return to the Bible Room episode, so maybe they didn't have a clear idea what the Bible Room was. It's possible. And maybe this is the first mention of it. If any of you who know Odyssey lore better than us, let us know. Is this the first mention of the Bible Room? So he sees it up on the top shelf, and he's like, oh, shoot, I can't reach it from here. I'll get this chair. And the sound is of him rolling a chair over on a hard floor, which... Well, rolling chair, or scooting, it's not really clear. I thought it was you think it's really... It I don't think either, it's necessarily the case. And he has a bit of a moment where he's like, oh, Mr. Whitaker doesn't like us to stand on chairs. Well, I'll just do it really quick. It'll be fine. Foreshadowing. So in real life, I actually worked with a lady who stood on a chair and felt off and she was out of work for like two months she broke her wrist or did she have a really bad concussion because if you land on your occipital bone that's i don't remember how she had concussion blurry vision i don't remember how she landed but i do know she was out of work for like a month or two yeah so anyway you know how this is gonna go he gets the book he's sort of sliding it off and then what Thunk, and then we hear those yeah, chimes, harp music, and you're like, oh, he's unconscious. He has hit his head hard. And that's how we can go back in time. Time travel. So this is fun, because obviously they haven't come up with the Imagination Station yet. And that's not for a while. Which is going to be, obviously, a way that Odyssey has the ability to do time travel-esque stories with kids in historical situations interacting with people from the past. But this, they hadn't come up with that idea. And so you can see the roots of that kind of stuff forming. How can we do stories with kids interacting with heroes from the past? We'll have them hit his head really hard and imagine the whole thing. Well, the funny thing is that both Josh and I remember this episode as an Imagination Station episode. And I think it's because of the way they do interacting with the historical people. Yeah, the way the kid talks with these historical people. The funny thing is that he has not really a whole lot of agency in this story. He's kind of drug along through his fantasy, mostly. And that's yeah. kind of how the Imagination Station episodes go. The events of the history that is being recounted or the biblical narrative that's being recounted, they're not going to change. Those events are set in stone. So the kid is kind kind of drug through the story and is able to witness these things firsthand. That's what happens with this kid in this episode. Which is kind of interesting because it's his dream. Which brings us back to talking about filters and the way that bias works. It actually works better for me than if it wasn't his dream because this is a fantasy from the perspective of a little boy who idolizes the Founding Fathers and loves the American Revolution. So as we have the events unfold, this is all filtered through Irwin's mind. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the writer's bias as well, which does come through, but they have handled this well in that we are seeing it all through Irwin's mind. We do have the perspective, and we need to keep the perspective of this is a kid whose geekdom is the Revolutionary War. So he wakes up, rubbing his head. Oh my goodness, the book must have hit it. And he's looking around and saying, I don't recognize these woods. They look kind of like the woods by Trickle Lake, but I don't know where it is. And then somebody whispers from the bushes, you, boy, 
he's trying to get him to come into the bushes if you value your life. And he's like, ah, I shouldn't talk to strangers. And then he starts hearing gunshots. He's like, right behind you. Yep, I'm a coming. And you hear, hold rebel dogs. And they go running and hide. And now we have more music. And it's, again, this super duper like Yankee cheerful doodle kind of. Yankee doodle, but adventure music. Which, it was fun. Because the music belies the danger of the situation. There is literally a dude shooting at them. Yeah, this could have been played really, really straight so that it's super dangerous, scary scenario, but it never is. It's Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest, yeah, jumping fences, dodging trees, and trying to get away. It is jolly and joyous and cheerful and Already, we can see that we are not getting into a dark and gritty battlefield, but we are getting into the Disney World Liberty Square version of 1776. Yes, which is fun and exactly what you would expect from a boy imagining the Revolutionary War. A boy who probably grew up reading books like Johnny Tremaine. This is true. placement. So then you hear the British walk by and they're arguing with each other about, did you see them? I don't know. And they sound like Sir Kay and his son from Sword in the Stone. I don't know where they are. Alfie, my feet are so sore. Yeah, kind of an exaggerated British accent. (laughs) And Irwin is just in shock right now. He's like, wait, are those British officers? And the man he's with says, yes, and they're very deadly ones and I have no more shot left or I would fight them. So they're sitting there trying to figure out what to do and Irwin's like, oh, there's a wasp nest up there. And so uh, this guy picks up a stone. Stands up and calls their attention to himself. Hey, Lobster Max, how about some company? And he throws the stone and hits the wasp nest. And they, they run screaming. Yeah, chaos. And then the wasps turn on Erwin and the guy and they run. They and... run and jump in the water to swim and escape the wasps. Right. And... Erwin's like, I can't swim. And he's like, oh, there's no time like the present to learn. It's super fun. So afterward, they get out of the water. We've had quite an adventure. I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Nathan Hale. And Erwin has this moment where he goes, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And this becomes a catchphrase for him. He says multiple times throughout the episode. There's several things that we need to talk about here. We're moving very quickly. But first, I want to mention the tick of speech, that oh, wow, oh, wow thing. Erwin is so likable and so fun in a way that none of the other one-off kid characters were. Most of them didn't have a ton of personality outside of what directly served the story. This is a great bit of writing because they gave him this one identifiable, memorable verbal tick. Well, and also they gave him something to care about, which they've done with other one-off kid characters. There are things that they care about. But they gave him something specific. This is his thing. This and is so then they jam. craft the story around it. And, and so he, he can feels so lively and so fun throughout yes. this whole story is great. Also, because of his heroism of guys like Nathan Hale and understanding that this is filtered through his mind, the whole impracticality of standing up and shouting at the Redcoats before throwing the stone. Why wouldn't he just throw the stone? It's basically he makes himself a target. Then throws the And then throws the stone. In real life, that would never happen. In an adventure story, it's so great and so satisfying. Because Nathan Hale is Errol Flynn. Or the man in black. Yeah, he is Han Solo. He is this swashbuckling hero. You can hear the twinkle in his.
his eye as he speaks, roguishly handsome, yeah. all of that stuff comes through his voice and his performance. It's a hoot. Yeah. He's also beautifully humble because Erwin's like, who hasn't heard of you? Uh, everyone, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> very, very casual. Just very fun. So Erwin's asking what year it is, and he's like, it's 1776. Oh, wow. Are you all right? You seem delirious. And he is, yes. but there you go. Yeah. So they are on their way to the camp of the Continental Army, and then we have more music that's wonderful. And so far, we were actually really enjoying this episode and very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I was like... I'm actually having a lot of fun with this, which, going back to my bias as mentioned, I was afraid I wouldn't, and I was liking it, and I was having fun, and I was like, when's the other boot gonna drop? When am I going to start cringing about it getting overly preachy? I don't know. But, not yet. So, so, so far, go so camp, good. And Nathan Hale has to report to headquarters, and he takes Erwin with him, which, is that a thing that you would do during wartime? I found this kid in the woods. I'm gonna go take him and report top secret information to headquarters. Well, of course you wouldn't. But this but... is a kid's dream. So he's walking around camp starry-eyed, like, this is everything I ever dreamed of come to life. Yeah, everything he's ever dreamed of, it is his, his dream. dream. So they go to the headquarters tent, and Nathan Hale introduces him as the young man who saved his life, because he's the one who had pointed out the wasp's nest, and he's like, well... Captain Hale did all the work. Ah, he is modest as well. The man who he's talking to, the general, is General George Washington. Here come the general! <laughs> yes. Again, we have the oh wow, and this is a bit that I specifically remember years and years later, where Washington kind of stops and he says, oh wow, is that some sort of Indian greeting? I don't know, sir. He's been saying this the whole time. In that case, in the honor of the people of Odyssey, Odyssey? I say... Okay. Oh, oh wow, wow to you. you. It's cute. It's a yeah. little dumb, but it's cute. Washington says he's in his debt, and he said, we were just about to retire for prayer. Would you join us? What? Well, of course, if you don't pray. No, 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 I do pray every day. I'm a Christian. A patriot and a Christian. There's no better combination. Stop. So I had to pause there because that statement was really in line with the kind of ideas that I feared. Let's talk about patriotism, and let's talk about patriotism and Christianity as they are united here. Patriot and a Christian, no better combination. I would say it depends on what you mean by patriotism. There's a really, really great podcast. It's like 15 minutes or so to listen to. You can also read the transcript. We'll link to it in our mm -hmm. show notes. Yes. But it's from John Piper talking about, should Christians be patriotic? Piper comes to the conclusion, because he's answering this question in light of, should we be patriotic, knowing that this world will be destroyed and remade, knowing that we are in enemy-occupied territory where Satan holds sway, we are fallen, and we are sojourners here as children of God? And his answer is yes and no. Let's start with the no. He says that for Christians, our loyalty is to Christ, not to any government, not to any flag, not to any nation. Christians all over the world are unified in the kingdom of God. So to claim patriotism to a land or government or what have you must 
necessarily be secondary. Even the strongest claim that a government has on a person is nothing compared to the claim of a Christian brother or sister from another nation. A very clear example of this kind of thing is in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where King Nebuchadnezzar having them bow to the statue was as much a political as it was a religious thing. But their refusal is demonstrated we are loyal to God alone. We will serve you, O king, we will serve you well, but our allegiance is to God. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that Christians should not participate in government or in politics, which leads us to the second point, the yes, Christians can be patriotic or should be. Piper actually says that a way that he understands it is through Lewis's discussion of the four loves. Mm. And you have brother love, phileo, you have romantic sexual love, eros, you have agape, which is God's love. And then the last one is storge. And storge is an odd sort of affection that a person might have for something that makes them Garment. comfortable. I think Lewis talks about a very old set of slippers. You've had them for years and years and years. They fit your feet just right. Your wife wants you to throw them away because they're all ratty and they're coming apart at the seams. But you don't want to get rid of them because... So comfy. That is a form of patriotism, and it can be healthy. I have a sweater that's like that that I love. My family calls it my writing sweater. It's Belong old and ratty and gross. I got it from my grandfather. I love it dearly. If I lost it, I would be sad. Our son has a specific stuffed animal squirrel that he is so attached to that if we misplace it in the house before bedtime, he weeps on his way to bed. And he recognizes, even at two years old, there's certain recognition that squirrel is a thing. He is not the most important. Squirrel is not alive in his mind. Mm -hmm. And yet, weirdly, in his two-year-old brain, squirrel is alive. It's this weird Kelvin and Hobbes thing going on. Yes. That's very hard to put my finger on. But his love for squirrel, I would say, is a form of patriotism. There are many toys that he has, but there is only one squirrel. And this can be a love for a specific people group, a specific ethnicity, a specific nation, whatever that may be. And it gets is more complex when you're talking about the nation. I mean, squirrel is a stuffed animal. It doesn't have any faults, per se, beyond being smelly. When we're talking about America, we would be the first to say America has many faults and it has many benefits. And we can be patriotic with that kind of love for it while recognizing the good parts and the bad parts. Certainly. I can say I love my country. I love the people of my country. I love the land itself. I'm comfortable here. This is mm -hmm. my home. This is the only world I've really known. I love the principles that America is founded on. I don't think that America has done a very good job throughout her history of no. following those principles, but boy, they're good principles. Yes. And I would love to see them followed even more. So all that said, you can be patriotic, but it's a matter of putting first things first and recognizing where is our real citizenship. I'm a citizen of the United States, but I'm a citizen of God's kingdom first and much more importantly. Yes. So that statement from Washington was a little iffy to us. I do want to make the disclaimer, and we both recognize this, that it's very hard to be complex, and we're dealing with lots of complex issues here, in a 26-minute episode. That's designed for children. And That's obviously, also filtered we're digging, through the dream of a boy. Yeah, we're digging deeper probably than the writers intended anyone to with this stuff. But that's what we do. 
So we move into a prayer from Washington that begins, Almost glorious God, I acknowledge and confess my faults in the weak and imperfect performance of my duties this day. And it's a bit longer. It goes on for a little bit. And he prays in the name of Jesus Christ. And I don't remember if he actually brings up the gospel in the prayer that they have in so. the episode. We had to pause because we thought, Oh, my word. My, Are they making this up? Yeah, that was my biggest concern was, have they just made Washington way more spiritual than he was in real life? Here's the thing with the founding fathers. Or let's just stick to George Washington for stick the moment. Stick to George Washington right now. We went and looked this up because there are some historians now saying that George Washington was absolutely not a Christian, absolutely a secular humanist, and that has been a popular and true in many respects statement of the Founding Fathers. Many of the Founding Fathers were just deists and they were not actually Christians. If you look at Thomas Jefferson, many of you I'm sure are familiar with the idea of the Jefferson Bible. Yeah, where he cut out all of the supernatural references, and it ended with, and Jesus died, the, the end. end. There's no resurrection, there's no nothing. And so Jefferson said that Jesus had a lot of moral teachings, a lot of good things to say, but he completely rejected the idea of him being God's son. He rejected the idea of the resurrection, mm -hmm. of all of that. So knowing that kind of colors a lot of how I look at the Founding Fathers. Yes. Well, and you did find an article that claimed Washington was also just a deist. However, after listening to this prayer, we looked up the prayer specifically and tried to flesh that out more. And, and it it's real. Hard, and it is real. It's super hard to find balanced sources. Just want to lay that out there because I did find lots of contemporary sources that leaned very heavily on all the Founding Fathers were Christians. How dare the secular historians say otherwise and i wanted to steer clear of that in the interest of being balanced we this also found a number of articles that claimed the exact opposite. opposite right so being able to tell we are not historians by expertise this prayer is truncated but it is taken from a prayer book that washington wrote when he was 20 and it was found at Mount Vernon. I do not think it's kept there now, but he had a very short, it's like a hundred pages long, that he wrote out prayers for each day of the week, morning and evening. And this is from, I think, Sunday morning. And the oldest source that I could find without actually going to museums, etc., was from a book called George Washington the Christian by William J. Johnson, published in 1919. And this man begins his book by saying, I have found very little evidence put forward among historians for George Washington's Christianity, but I believe that he was, and there is much evidence in favor of it. And the rest of the book is anecdotes from his peers, from people under his command, things from his own writing, letters, this prayer book, quite a lot of circumstantial evidence that appeared to point toward him being not just a deist, but an actual born-again Christian. Now, we also know from history that Washington was heavily involved in the Freemasons. He became a Master Mason, which is high up in the ranks, when he was 21. And without getting too far into Masonic teaching, there is a lot of that that is anti-biblical and anti-Christian. So how we At piece all of this right together... Now, we, as in Josh and I, do not know what the Masons were like 
1776 or earlier. So all that said, there is a lot of complexity here. And because Washington has been dead for a pretty long time and we cannot sit down and hash these things out with him, we're left to try to piece things together as best we can. We do not know what his heart was, but there is evidence that yes, this prayer was written by his hand. And yes, he did pray morning and evening. And that's cool. Irwin is completely pumped that he's praying with General George Washington. And he says, I had always read you were religious, but I never realized how much Jesus really meant to you. Again, it's hard to be too complicated in a 26-minute episode. Yeah. How much did Jesus really mean to him? That's not something that anyone today, I would think, is equipped to say say. with any definitive answer. Focus on the family does lean on the, he was a born-again Christian, because he says, do you hold these truths in your heart? And Erwin thinks and says, well, I never really thought about it before, and I never really realized how God does rule countries, and he's in control of what happens to them. So the answer is, yes, sir. Which is, again, a bit more of the bias toward God was very directly influential in the founding of America. So, this is true in a sense. God is sovereign over all of the workings of the world. Nations rise and fall. God's hand is at work. And to say that God's hand was at work in the American Revolution is absolutely true. In another sense, did God ordain America in the sense of a new chosen people? I would say not. So when we talk about God ruling over the affairs of men and of nations, we need to be careful about how we discuss that. Yes, he does. But that does not mean that he approves of everything that is done that is done. That end. Sometimes he uses wicked nations and wicked people to accomplish his will. God's will is a complex thing. He'll rise up the Babylonians and send them to attack his chosen people, Israel, in order to draw Israel back to himself when they've rebelled. Does that mean that God approved of the Babylonians? No, absolutely not. When God sets up America, does that mean God blanket approves of everything the United States does? Don't make me laugh. Or did even in... Or did even with the Revolutionary War. I don't think we can say that. So, again, that's way more complex than is intended here. So, Washington says, if you hold these truths in your heart, then you are the right man for the job. The Second Continental Congress is drafting a second declaration of independence, but there are some in that Congress that do not feel, as you and I do, that God must be first in our country. So I have a message to send to them, urging them to remember the ruler of nations as they prepare this document. And they send Irwin to take it to them. Well, I could not find any evidence that this was actually a thing. Yeah, I don't think it was. I think this but is just something for... But it is a story reason for... to get Irwin to the Second Continental Congress. So right. it's his dream. It's not bad. <laughs> so he's all excited and raring to go. And he asks Nathan Hale, hey, you're going to go gonna with do... me, right? No, I cannot come. Because he says he's going back to New York. Mm-hmm. And Irwin's like, wait a second, you're going to be hanged. Ah, but if that is the Lord's will, who am I to stand in the way? And then they put in that, I regret that I have only one life to lose for my country, which is a Nathan Hale quote. Yeah, a classic, classic quote. So yeah, they get him up on a horse and we have a repeat of the, you do know how to, and Irwin doesn't know how to ride, but he pulls Nathan Hale's quote No time like the present to learn. And it's 
so good from a writing standpoint. There's so much that I really dig in this episode, yes. the way that it's done. The little bit when they're going to jump in the water, you know how to swim, right? Nope. Oh, no time like the present to learn. Splash, and we hear him jump in. Do you know how to ride a horse? And Erwin is the one who says, no time like the present to learn. You're, You're going, going with, with me, him, right? right? And that's when he gets the drop of, no, no I'm, I'm not coming. To. It goes from being this silly, swashbuckling adventure thing to being something a little bit more poignant. And then Nathan, after he has that classic quote, smacks the horse's bum, you hear it right away, and you hear Erwin go, Wah! And he shows up at Wait. the Second Continental Congress. And we have commercial break. And after a commercial break, he shows up at the Second Continental Congress. And the music comes in. We've had the fife and drum, and now we have trumpets and French horns and just really cool. Majesty. Yes. And he gets off the horse and is like, why did I ever think riding a horse was fun? Which is kind of how I feel every time I ride a horse. I get very sore. Horses are often so glamorized. And I don't know, I grew up around horses enough. Giant, stubborn. Yeah, a lot of people just love horses and I'm not one of them. I got bit by a horse when I was a kid and they could step on you or kick you. And even riding on top of them is not terribly comfortable Well, and they also know when you're not comfortable. I've had experiences of a horse being like, oh, you're not happy up there? Let me walk into the woods off the trail this way. And now we'll get a lot of angry fan mail from people who just love horses. How dare you? Sorry. We're bunny people. I'm sorry. Yeah, I like my rabbit. So he arrives at the Pennsylvania State House and walks right in. He hears arguing in the background. You can hear it faintly. So the Congress is going on and he's walking through the hall saying, oh, wow, oh, wow, again. And he hears somebody say, shh, boy, Mr. Whitaker? And you hear Hal's voice. Yeah, it's Hal Smith doing the voice here. No, I beg your pardon? It's Ben Franklin. And Irwin has this moment of, oh my goodness, you look exactly like somebody I know back home. Oh, do I? Poor fellow. Which is great. So it also gives us a bit of a picture for, in the Odyssey writer's mind, what Mr. Whitaker looks like. Which is not what he looks like in, in any of the illustrations. Nope. Not skinny wit, not portly wit, yeah, with the big handlebar mustache. Yeah. There's been multiple cartoon pictures of Mr. Whitaker. None of them look like Ben Franklin. Nope. So, okay. Irwin tells Ben Franklin that he has a message from General Washington. Oh, by all means, we must bring it to him. So he takes him into the Congress, and John Adams and John Dickinson are arguing. And in the room, you have kind of a who's who of these founding father figures engaged in this conversation. I think the only people that really talk are Adams and Dickinson, and then the chairman. Is that it? The moderator, yeah. Okay. So then Irwin reads the message that General Washington gave him. He reads this script kind of thing. Gentlemen of the Congress, I write to you at a most delicate time. Our cause faces its most trying days. General Howe has gathered 30,000 troops ready to strike, blah, 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 and it goes on. And I couldn't find any document that actually had this text in it. Yeah, so, so it might be completely it, created whole cloth for this Odyssey episode. Or it might not be. If you have access to the source material, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, this point 
in history. I think we are actually declaring we've been trying to negotiate with the king and we are declaring our independence. Now we're done. We are our own nation. And John Dickinson is counseling caution. He's saying, I don't think that we have enough resources to fight for our freedom from the British. I don't think it's going to work. And we will all have sent men to the slaughter and died in vain. And I can't countenance that. And John Adams says, the cause of freedom merits any price, Mr. Dickinson. Someone else speaks out and says, the size of our army matters not. God will not abandon an army with so righteous a cause if we remember his loving kindness. Lots of people say, hear, 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 hear. Mr. Dickinson says, are you so sure God is with us? So then they finish the message. And here we have again that bias coming up. Yes. That this is an inherently noble cause and that God necessarily was on the side of the revolution in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so the end of the message is an exhortation to seek the counsel of Almighty God in this endeavor as they are drafting the Declaration of Independence. And again, John Dickinson is saying, are we so sure that God cares particularly about our specific cause? And that's when Ben Franklin speaks up and says, he cares, Mr. Dickinson. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see that God governs in the affairs of man. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible an empire can rise without his aid? My first reaction upon hearing this was, Ben Franklin didn't ever say that. Ben Franklin, out of all of the Founding Fathers, is the most famously deistic, secular humanist, Mr. Age of Enlightenment kind Christianity of Christianity and water kind of guy. But he did say this. Mm -hmm. And he actually was the one exhorting the Second Continental Congress to pray. Which we looked up some historians. We read an article about it. A couple actually secular historians that talk about this. This is a weird thing, but it is something that Franklin sort of adhered to. He was an avowed secular humanist, but he did see good things coming out of a more devout Christianity, even if he didn't believe himself. Yeah, it's a very odd thing. One thing I appreciate, though, in the Odyssey episode is that they don't attempt to spiritualize him any more than this. Yeah, they do embellish that quote a little bit. So here is what he says during the convention's first month. I'm going to quote from the article. During the convention's first month, the delegates were bogged down in intractable debates between the large and the small states and the free and the slave states. The delegates' inability to agree on issues such as representation in Congress illustrated the, quote, imperfection of human understanding. That's an observation from Franklin. He says, in this situation, if this assembly, groping as it were in the dark, to find political truth, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings? He's actually asking them to pray to God. Have yeah. we now forgotten how, our powerful friend? How come we have not prayed yet? Yeah, and apparently his advice was not followed. Nobody did officially instate prayer as part of the proceedings of the Continental Congress. Yeah. Yeah. So what you do with that quote, with what we know of Ben Franklin, I don't know. Again, all of the Founding Fathers, this is kind of complex. And to treat it like it's easy one way or another is... To leave out a lot of the complexity and yeah. just have a very two-inch deep idea of this. I don't think we can take from this that Franklin was a Christian. I think it's pretty clear he was not. But focus on the family. Chose a quote that satisfies their bias. Yes. But and it is something a little bit. he actually he added said, a little bit more to or it. less. But he more or less did say that. And he did want them to pray. So, 
take that for what it is. Yeah. So John Dickinson riffs off of his idea of empires falling and says, You speak of empires. We're trying to build a commonwealth. Might we split into separate commonwealths if this goes south? And Erwin jumps in saying, No, no, no. It's going to be a great nation. You guys are going to win. It's going to be awesome. And they're all like, Ah, the idealism of youth. But what does reality tell us, gentlemen? Dickinson actually is pretty good and has a good level head. Which we actually had to look up Dickinson. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with him before re-listening to this. Yeah, he actually helped draft most of the early documents. The Declaration of War, the petitions to the king. Yeah, trying to avoid avoid war. And saying, hey, can you work with us here? Because this is not good. Yeah, this is not working. But when it got down to it at this point, he did not believe that they could continue and win. And he could not in good conscience send men off to what he felt would be a slaughter for a fruitless endeavor. So he walks out and they have this scene in this episode. Gentlemen, I respectfully abstain. I will remove myself. He could not actually stay in Congress and and disagree with them. And as he leaves... They make a point of the guys who remain saying, that's a worthy gentleman. And I really liked that. He is not demonized. He's not made to look like a coward. He's made, as he appears to have been in history, a man of principles and a man who stuck to those principles. Whether or not the rest of the guys agreed with him, they all respected him, even after the fact. They said, nope, he's a good dude. And I appreciated that. I did too. So Adams finishes this whole thing by saying, what can I say? Because Dickinson has his speech of, gentlemen, vote against independence. This is not a good idea. We are all going to die. And And it's an impassioned speech. It is so impassioned. And it ends, vote against independence. And there's a lightning crash sound. Ah, Thunder. Thunder. (sighs) Very dramatic. And then the Speaker of the House says, Mr. Adams, do you have anything to add? And Adams says, what can I say that hasn't already been hackneyed back and forth through this room? They've been at this for months. Yeah. And he says, my living sentiment and my dying sentiment is liberty. Vote for independence. That was a very truncated version. But he has a similarly impassioned speech in favor of independence. And so everybody agrees, here, here, and they're going to put it to a vote. And that's when Mr. Dickinson respectfully absents himself. So I need to give a note here about this whole courtroom congressional hearing Mm -hmm. scene. The dialogue crackles and the performances the actors give are so rich and good. We've been very impressed with the performances. This it's a combination of cobbled together real quotes from the founding fathers and some embellishment and stuff that the writers did. But the way it's put together It is riveting. It is fun to listen to. It comes alive. I loved it. Yeah, it was super good. And it continues being good because now they put it to a vote and then there's this audio fade in and out between all the colonies voting and excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And then we have Irwin sent off on the horse again. Ride, Irwin Springer. Declare to all these United States under God we are now and forevermore free. And we hear the horse galloping and him being like, America's free. free. Hooray! And he 
falls off the horse. And hits his head, and apparently that's how you get into Cool Dreams, and how you exit Cool Dreams is all via a bonk on the head. Yep. Wit and Tom are waking him up. His first reaction upon seeing Wit's face oh, is... Oh, Mr. Franklin? Benjamin what? Franklin. <laughs> it's almost like the end of Wizard of Oz. I had the craziest dream, and you were in it. Yeah. And Tom says he's going to go check on the ambulance, and Wit is explaining what happened. You fell, the book hit you. You were only out for a couple of seconds. I have a, a couple timing. of minutes. No, he says a couple seconds. Okay. I have a timing issue with that because if they've had enough time to call the ambulance and he's only been out a couple seconds, that's not enough time for the ambulance to get there. A couple seconds still isn't even enough time to call the ambulance. Yeah. He would still be on the phone with them. Either way, minor hiccup. Then we have like, I had the most incredible dream and you were in it and Ben Franklin looked and sounded just like you. Oh, oh did, did he? he? Poor, Poor fellow. fellow. This is fun, and I appreciated the joke as a kid. As an adult, I was like, that's a super meta joke that I'm not entirely sure fits. So is Mr. Whitaker supposed to be aware of his resemblance to Benjamin Franklin or aware of being in, in Irwin's dream? dream? But the episode ends with Irwin Same. bursting out one last time. Oh, Wow! wow. So then and that's we, the end of the story. Yeah, and we go to Chris, where she wraps things up. That was a cool adventure. And then kind of camps on, did you know George Washington really did pray every night and every morning? Kind of hammering That God protected on... him. He had a horse shot out from under him three times during a battle. Which, all of that actually is true from our research. Yeah, and she's kind of doubling down on that edge of the bias a little bit, but not necessarily in a bad way. No. And that's the end of the episode. So we need to get to our final thoughts because we've spent a lot of time talking about biases and trying to be careful to present history as it happened and not filter it too hard through one lens or another. And I've got to say, I was very, very nervous going into this episode, but overall... I don't have a lot of complaints here. I really actually rather like this. Mm -hmm. We were both worried that it was going to be disappointing, and we were so very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I expected it to be overly preachy, but honestly, this is something that I would have no problem sharing with my son. It is not the only piece of American history mm -hmm. that he will get, but I think it's totally fine. Yeah, the worst thing that we can say for it beyond the bias is that it's the Disney Liberty Square. Yeah. It's a little bit too, we're going on an adventure. And, but and again, rah, this is a 26-minute This is a 26-minute episode, and we've said this before. Can't get very complex. Yeah. It. So so after how much we disliked in the previous album, we're two episodes into this album, and they're good, guys. Hooray! This is the odyssey that excited. I remember from being a kid. We are super excited for the rest of the album because we have beloved episodes in all three, at least. So stick around and join us next time. For now, have a great day. Bye.